Yeah. We're back with another one. It's been a little minute since I did the last one. It's been a couple weeks. I went out of town, went back to Maryland to catch my roots for a little bit. Came back to LA now. Still in the midst of this thing we call COVID. It's ridiculous. But you know, I've been doing a lot of thinking, a lot of listening, a lot of reflecting. If you're not hip already, this is the podcast that we call Back in the Days. We tell stories and we kind of self-analyze, you know, think about how is it that I got to where I am today from a life that was so simple, you know, before adulting. No bills, no love, not a care in the world, you know. It's funny because I I remember specifically my father saying to me when I was younger, man, don't take it for granted, you know? You're gonna miss these days when you're older and and you have responsibilities. Just enjoy being a kid for a little bit, you know? You couldn't tell me shit, I was like, man, fuck that, (laughs) you know? Being an adult is gonna be lit, I'm doing whatever hell I want to be, ice cream for breakfast, nigga, what you mean? But, just like he said, I, I definitely understand it now. It's a different kind of thing, man. Like waking up and just going to school, see your friends, all of that. You don't have to worry about too much, you know? And it's, it's the simple things that make you excited and happy. But we're always so busy looking in the past or looking to the future that we don't always appreciate the present right there when it's in front of us. One of those things that I took for granted in particular was my halftime orange slice. (laughs) See, I played football growing up and, um, you know, at halftime, they would give us uh, Gatorade bottles, you know. You you have the water bottles that were filled up with water, of course, but there was always those one or two that had like some Gatorade in it. Everybody wanted something sweet, so they were trying to pass around and see who got the good one, you know? And uh, with that, you know, the parents would come over and they would have these little plastic baggies that had orange slices in them. And I'll never forget, that was such an innocent thing to eat an orange slice at halftime. And one day, you just stop getting those orange slices. They, not a halftime thing anymore maybe it's around high school or when you're considered to be too old for an orange slice at halftime I don't know what I know is that to me that was the the defining moment in my nostalgia that said damn that's the transition into adulthood what happened to my halftime orange slice And that concept, that thought while I was sitting in the shower one day sparked this entire podcast. It sparked the reason for me going through my memory because it actually made me really emotional. So today we're going to unpack that a little farther. Today's episode is episode five. This is Halftime Orange Slice. Stick with me, y'all. Drop the hammer, woo. 
drop the hammer, woo, 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 drop the hammer, woo, 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 drop the hammer. That used to be my shit, man. We had this little thing, it's a little song we used to do, we go, down by the river, we took a little walk, when we met Kent Land, then we had a little talk, I said, listen, baby, who you think you're fooling, the cougars are the best, from the east to the west, break an arm, break a leg, break the quarterback's head, I said, ooh, ha, ooh, ha, ooh, ha, ooh, ha. I don't know what y'all did growing up, man, but I, I grew up playing football from the time I was about, what, six years old? All the way up until my senior year of high school. That was our thing. You always got hyped for the game. And it was these little things that we used to do. You know, it's funny because thinking about it now as an adult, obviously, you know, it's something deeply afrocentric about it something tribal you know but we used to hit our pads and different type of rhythms every team had their own little things that they did i don't even know what you called the cadences i just we, we called it contact you know they were like contact contact can i get a contact and you have all these different things that they would do these little beats that they would do with their <laughs> pads you know you can't hear it on the mic. You'd be like, doom, doom, sh, doom, doom. Or it'd be like, uh, I don't know, these random call and responses. I love it, I love it, can't get enough of it. I love it, I love it, can't get enough of it. You know? The closest thing we've seen to that that makes you feel nostalgic is, uh, you know, Remember the Titans. I remember on Remember the Titans with Denzel Washington and all of them, you know, Wood Harris and all of them. Uh, it, was, it was Ryan Gosling in there too, I think. There's a lot of, a couple little young stars in that thing, man. But I remember they had the whole, uh, everywhere we go, everywhere we go, the people want to know, people want to know who we are. Who we are, so we tell them, so we tell we are the Titans. Man, I'm telling you, boy, that shit. Every team that I knew of growing up, at least when I was playing the league, when I was playing, uh, it was Jabbo Kenner was our league, Jabbo Kenner League, when I played for the Lamar Rig Steelers. And then I moved to. Uh, teams in Maryland and that was Lanham Lanham Raiders and the New Carrollton Cougars you know every team had this thing about them where we would do these little cadences and call and responses and it was just like a universal language you know it was structure it was a, a, a military call and response it was the same thing as saying left 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 right left left you know <laughs> it it was nostalgic it was special if you understood that language then you understood how to communicate with other kids from the neighborhood or other neighborhoods because you had something that you could connect through and that was football you know it was so many different kids 
who I guess we didn't know as we were little, but you know, now that I'm getting older, I'm recognizing it, who didn't have father figures. You know, they didn't have people who were leading them uh, in the right paths or any path at that, you know? Um, And there's something about a, a, a young man that feels like when you don't have a father present or a father figure present that you want to just rebel because of what society tells you about manhood or anything like that you know I grew up in a fortunate situation I had my father I had hella uncles you know I had about what I guess four good uncles you know my uncle Sean uncle Eugene my uncle Rashid my uncle Mike you know and then of course you know black family you always got that extended family so I got my uncle Randall who's really my uh cousin's god brother's father who I call my own cousin you know <laughs> black people family goes so goddamn extended you know and I mean you know I had grandparents and all of that but the thing is that a lot of these kids they didn't have nobody so whoever they had around played a role in their life I remember growing up my father was always a coach on the football teams that I played for if it wasn't for my brother's team it was for my team you know and that created a kind of weird dynamic for me in some ways it was cool because it was like my dad's here you know but he always wanted to challenge me and push me but he couldn't do it publicly because it couldn't make it seem like like as though he was showing favoritism if that makes sense you know my father in a lot of ways I think tried to live through us through his sons you know and I don't know if he recognizes that he did it intentionally or not but it's definitely something that my mother would agree with, uh, not just me. And so much so that I think sometimes he pushed us uh, a little bit too hard because he wanted to make up for his own failures or maybe regrets, if that's the correct word. I'm not really sure, but he wanted to fulfill something that wasn't necessarily fulfilled in himself from his experience through us and being able to say that he did it off a second opportunity you know I played quarterback growing up I remember my first year of football I was on the line I don't even think I remember how football worked on any level or anything I just remember standing there in pads I remember being on the sideline (laughs) and there was this little kid his name was Keith so oh not Keith I'm sorry his name was uh Kenny is it Kenny or Kennedy? One of the two. I might be getting it mixed up because he was on Kennedy Street. So maybe it wasn't Kennedy. Maybe his name was Kenny. But I just remember he was the best fucking football player I'd ever seen in my life. I was six years old and I was like, this kid is running all over the place and scoring touchdowns and all that. Like, he understands this damn game. I don't know what I'm sitting here on the sideline playing with dirt and. <laughs> Standing here with this fat ass bar across my face with a duck face mask. (laughs) I was confused, but my brother played football. We used to watch football every week, 
all this other type of shit. I was like, I want to play, but I didn't know what to do. I didn't know if I was supposed to run out there and tackle somebody. It's like the best example. Like when you see these little kids these days and they have on these huge pads that are way bigger than their bodies and they're out there running all over the place, just running into each other and have no structure and the adults are on the field with them. <laughs> and, uh, it's funny because as I'm talking about, I remember that first year that I played football, I was on the field. And I guess, you know, they always play the best players who know what's going on. And if you just kind of clueless, you stand on the side. And that was me. And then towards the end of the game, when nothing matters anyway, they'll call your number. So I remember standing on the sideline. And I don't know if we were playing Rosedale or somebody. And, um, or like one of the numbers, you know, they used to have teams like number 16 or number 14 or whatever the fuck they were in D.C. It, it was weird, you know what I'm saying? But I remember the coach said, Bailey, go in there. And I was like clueless, like, where do I go? And he was like, on the on, uh, go go to linebacker or something like that. And I don't know what the fuck it was, but he, whatever he told me to do, I didn't know where to go. I just went and lined up on the defensive line. <laughs> I remember the coach looking so frustrated. He was just like, oh, what are you doing, you know? And I just got down or whatever. And I just went and tried to, like, hit somebody. I didn't know who to hit. I was like, let me just run into somebody. That's what I'm supposed to do, right? Like, <laughs> But I remember hearing his voice say, Bailey, what are you doing? And him pulling off his hat and going, oh. And I was so disappointed. I was so fucking disappointed. I was just like, I did the wrong thing. Like, <laughs> but it didn't matter. Like, I didn't fucking care. Let's be honest. But I was out there just playing. I didn't know anybody. I didn't know anything. I was just out there. And my best friend was there. You know, his name was, uh, if I'm not mistaken, his name was Michael McQueen. And I had Mike's phone number. I don't know what the hell we used to be talking about, but I had it written on a lunch box or a pencil box. And I used to call Michael every week. I'm sure of it. And we would be on the phone at like six years old. I have no clue what the fuck we could have ever been talking about. But I remember I used to go to my friends and say, can I call Michael? <laughs> and that was my best little friend. And then there was another kid there. Uh, his name was Denzel. And I'm drawing a blank on the last name, but I could probably look him up on Instagram right now because he's still, he, he he's a DJ. He goes by like DJ Hellzale or whatever the case may be. And I don't know. These was my, my friends, you know. We grew up, we were all in Riggs Park. And it was like my two best friends, Denzel and Michael. Michael was a quarterback. Denzel, I think he played cornerback. And uh, I wanted to play running back, but they had me at uh, the the defensive line or something like that, offensive line. And I, I remember my second year playing for Lamont Riggs. I went back out there and I, I played running back, but I, I didn't barely ever get the ball or anything like that. I'm pretty sure I was just blocking or some shit, you know. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I, I didn't. I couldn't conceptualize what football was just yet. But I just remember if I go to football practice, 
I get to be around my brother who at that time was my best friend I get to be around my father who always seemed happy and he was just a social butterfly and I didn't have to be alone in the house you know not that that would have been a problem I would have found some way to entertain myself but I just didn't want to miss out on something as a kid you know I'm a tourist I was as a little kid like I want to go wherever the party is I want to go I just want to be there you know and I remember I told my father I didn't want to play football anymore and I wanted to quit because I don't know if I was just bored or I didn't understand it or whatever and I remember he told me that I didn't have to play if I didn't want to but I remember going to watch my brother play at practice every single day and everybody loved him because he was so tiny he was the tiniest little thing but he could hit he would strike at people <laughs> and uh it was so exciting for him to play football and I was just like I want to play again so I don't know they had this thing too it's called homecoming and you know obviously as you get older you know what a homecoming is but as a kid you're like what is homecoming and it was the most exciting thing to me because people had these headbands they looked like karate <laughs> headbands or some shit they were black with gold puff paint and glitter and they would say Steelers on it and people used to do these little things with their socks it was cool I, I remember growing up in, in 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 the hood I guess I didn't even realize we was in the hood for real but growing up in the hood you you find innovative ways to do things so you know how Deion Sanders would say if you look good you play good you play good you know if you look good you feel good you feel good you play good you know and we didn't really have the money for visors and you know a bunch of like arm I don't even think people had arm straps and you know all those type of the compression tapes and all that the tights and shit not when we was little you had to go to sports authority or models and you could maybe get a couple different colored socks but just to have a little bit of swag like people would literally double and triple over socks and all different types of things you know what i'm saying like just a bunch of different cool little things where they would uh cut up socks and tie little straps around things to make designs and stuff and it was always like you knew who the best players were because they was always the flyest you know i remember because my team wore black and gold they would have some sort of like yellow tight socks that would go high underneath everything and then they would have like a white sock in the middle and then they would have a black sock on the bottom so you had this kind of like trifecta kind of colored thing going down your thing and if they was really hip they would take the black sock and put it in the middle and the white sock they would curl down over their entire shoe so what it looked like was a tape spat but we were too young to know what a tape spat was you know it's, it's really like a spat wrap to keep your ankle from twisting that's what the professionals used to do we just thought it looked cool so kids would take a white sock and put it over their entire cleat <laughs> and the shit looked tight it looked like oh wow like you know a professional and that was so cool to me you know what i'm saying and you know I, I, it's funny because growing up in in pg county maryland and in and, and, and in dc as younger kids you know what i'm saying you notice the distinct little differences between i guess what could be considered the hood in the city and then like the suburbs in maryland because in the hood it was fine everybody did shit like that they had little tattered things coming off of their clothes and shit and it was just like it was fashionable 
And then you go to play in Maryland in Prince George's County and they like, what the hell is that? Take that fucking sock off of your shoe. And I'm like, but it looks cool, you know? Like <laughs> And they're like, no, like you wear a uniform like everybody else. Like what are you talking about? And then you start to notice things like favoritism because the players who are good can do whatever they want. But if you're on the bench, what are you flashing for? You're not going to be seen. You're going to be standing on, looking pretty on the sideline. It's almost like they were saying work harder. You have to work harder to deserve to look quote unquote pretty. And they always called it pretty. Like, oh, you pretty. You know, you go hit somebody. I'll never forget when we moved to New Carrollton in PG County. I started playing for the New Carrollton Cougars and something about it. I said, I'm going to take this football shit serious. I'm, when I was in Lamont Riggs in DC, I just, I didn't know what the fuck I was doing, but something it's that tourist nature in me, or, or maybe that Virgo rising that makes me say like, I have to do this shit right. I need, I'm a perfectionist. So I decided I wanted to wear the number 27 for whatever. I, that's probably just what they had. And it looked cool to me. And I think I was looking at people like Eddie George and, I wanted to play quarterback though. I wanted to play running back at first. And I think that's why I chose 27. But there was another kid there and his name was Pops. Tyrone General. He was the best. He was, he looked like Barry Sanders out there, but he played quarterback. He would run bootlegs and he could throw the ball when he wanted to. And I just remember him always running down for touchdowns. And that actually ended up being my little best friend when I first moved to New Carrollton, which I say that hesitantly because as an adult, you start to realize that it was things like, uh, I don't want to say jealousy. That's not fair to put on a child. But when I came into town, you definitely knew that there was a presence of someone else who was getting attention in some way or another that he wasn't used to because he was the little superstar kid. He was the cute kid. He, everybody thought he looked like little Bow Wow and everything else like that, you know? I talked about this in a past episode when I said that <laughs> he had somebody pants me at school and I cried, you know? But, you know, when, when, when I came to play football, he played quarterback and I was the second string quarterback and I was just learning how the game worked and the basics of play calling and stuff like that. And this stuff was just simple to him. It's like, he just understood it in and out. He was always just naturally talented, you know? And I remember he had those white socks that were rolled over, <laughs> over his cleats and all the things that you weren't supposed to have. But because he was a star, he could do whatever he wanted. They wasn't going to tell him no. And you process things like that as a kid, you know, we were supposed to be out there just playing football shouldn't be that deep but you process things like accessibility that translates to adulthood and things like you know if you are traditionally attractive then you get more perks than if you are traditionally unattractive you know if you have money people give you things for free because they want to be associated with you as having money but the people who are actually in need and struggling 
It's kind of like, fuck you, nigga, figure it out. So you start putting two and two together as a child through little things like you can wear a visor or put tape on your face mask or all of the little ghetto things that we love to do in D.C. (laughs) for this Maryland team. But if I do it, it's like you can't do it. And more important, my dad was a coach. He was never the head coach. He was just a coach. And it's like, if anything, he should be the person to have me in line. I represented both of us, you know. So it's not only don't embarrass yourself, but don't embarrass your father. And it's weird because I remember there being so many moments where I had a split relationship with my father being a coach. You know, I played quarterback and there were certain things that I just wasn't understanding. I've always needed extra help in school. I always needed a tutor. I always had to stay after school a little late or show up a little early to get extra help. I know people don't like it when I say shit like this, but the truth of the matter is I was slow. I was slow as fuck. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? It took me a little longer to figure things out. But when I would figure them out, I had it. And I would always get like straight A's after that. You know what I'm saying? Like as far as I was concerned, it was like, yo, just take your time with me. But it seemed like the one thing that adults were always lacking was time. They never wanted to fuck with me. You know what I'm saying? Like they never wanted to just give me the time that it took to nurture and develop me. And that made my football experience miserable a lot of the time. I remember how much fun it was playing games like throwback tackle you know literally the game is simple one person tries to run from one side of the field to the other without getting tackled and everybody on the field is trying to tackle you I'm talking about like 20 kids all chasing after you and you shaking people and running you trying to be Barry Sanders and eventually you get tackled. And if you get tackled, you have to throw the ball up as far as you can away from it. And somebody has to go and get it and pick it up. And when they pick it up, they have to outrun everybody. And I started to master this game. I was so good at it. I, I was so good at throwback tackle. But when it came to the traditional game of football, couldn't figure it out. You know, I, I you would get me on the field. It was like I wasn't as fast. I couldn't juke nobody anything like that but put me in a loose game of throwback tackle nobody could touch me it was weird you know there's another game called uh 500 where you will pull out a number you say 50 or 200 100 or you would call jackpot and if you call jackpot you know that was an automatic win but you threw the ball up as high, and it was a hail mary game basically you threw the ball and there's a bunch of people And one person has to come down with it. And if you catch it, you keep your own score and you know what your score is. The goal was to not go over 500 or to catch the jackpot or to get exactly 500, you know. And if you knew somebody else had 400 and somebody called out 100 before they threw it and that person with 400 was trying to catch it, your goal was to try to knock it down before they could catch it. I got really good at this game, too, which essentially would make you think, go be a wide receiver. But I could not catch the ball for shit. I was butterfingers like a motherfucker when it came to the game. But when there's no pressure and it's just us playing 500, I'm great. 
this started to make me realize shit like all right I process things different I couldn't articulate this as a child though but as an adult in hindsight I'm looking back like yo I don't deal with pressure well you know and I'm starting to realize it more and more as I'm talking it out right now which is essentially what this podcast is about but I don't deal with pressure well it's like when the stakes are high I can't think I need it to be simplified and then I can do my best work when I'm in a relaxed environment and as we all know in life you don't always get that opportunity to have a relaxed environment to do your work in but what definitely doesn't help is a coach screaming down your throat yelling at you and added additional pressure and that was the biggest part of this shit I remember I had these coaches man these coaches who the one of the scariest coaches I knew was this guy named coach Greg who's one of my dad's best friends he loved coach Greg I love coach Greg too because he never had to fucking coach me but I just remember him being the most funny person when he wasn't coaching but when he was coaching and I would see him coaching it was like he was yelling at people and borderline cussing people out and what are you doing and this and that that's not smart get on the sideline you know and I was just like I never want to have to play for this guy but somehow I still ended up getting these other coaches who would do the same things the best coach I ever had was my very first coach at New Carrollton his name was coach Alonzo and coach Alonzo was just so encouraging and patient it was like he understood this is my first real year I was playing on the 75 pound team and literally because you know everything's by weight classes 75 85 95 110 whatever the case may be that was the the way that we played in our leagues it wasn't by age it was by weight class I guess to protect the kids and this guy coach Alonzo had silver hair he was light-skinned smooth brother you already knew all the ladies who probably came up there to drop off their kids wanted coach Alonzo and I'm sure he was I don't know if he was married or not but if he wasn't he was probably having his way (laughs) but coach Alonzo just taught you he would visually show you I remember there was a time when I was out there and I was getting ran over and tackling drills and I was like I can't do it he's like what do you mean you can't do it I was like I just can't get that low he's like what do you mean you can't get that low watch this and he got in the drill and he ran out there and he tackled somebody by the ankles he was like I'm three times bigger than you I can get down to the ground you can get down to the ground and then that's how I learned how to ankle tackle because I was small and I was tired of getting ran over and it was just simple let me just show you and now you do it he taught me how to throw the ball with the laces it's simple throw it here that's how you create a spiral that's how you do it now you try it then you have to start learning how to read defenses and all these type of things and then keep in mind at this point I'm probably only like nine or something like that but he's making it make sense and then coach Alonzo decided he wasn't going to coach anymore so you have to figure out who you're going to go play for that year we didn't have a head coach so it was either we weren't going to have a team or somebody had to step up so my father decided to step up as the head coach he said he was going to coach him he had two people who he knew from back in the day a guy named Greg Holloway coach Holloway and then a guy named coach not Yates coach 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 
what the hell was this dude's name? I'm ah, oh, I can't believe I'm drawing a blank right now. It was Coach Holloway and Coach something with a Q. Either way, they were his buddies from when he grew up. And they had the basics, but they didn't really understand strategy when it came to football. It was just the fundamentals. So we had a basic play package. And, you know, the only thing to say that's funny, we were losing every game. We never won a game that year. Super trash. Like, I remember it got to the point where, because a lot of the kids were first-year players, and they would just have them tackle off the line. They were like, you know, forget trying to even block because you just can't get the concept of how to block without holding. So just get in the way. Just try to get in the way or something, you know. And I remember that year was the first year that our team was going to play in what's called AAA, which was supposed to be where all the better teams were before we were AA. But because we had done really good the year before, they moved us up to AAA. And we were just getting whooped on by everybody. And there were all these players in our little league who were so good. It was this guy named Tristan Youngblood who played for Bowie. Bowie Bulldogs and he literally was like little Barry Sanders he was so fast he was shaking everybody and juking everybody and everything else like that and then there was another guy named Mumu uh he was playing for Peppermill he was the fastest kid in the country at least on the east coast uh all while I was growing up and we had to play against them and then there was this other team Laurel and they had this other guy named Anderson Bryson who I later grew to know as AJ and we all ended up playing together in high school, which is crazy. But, you know, these kids were way ahead of their fucking leagues. Like, you knew who they were around the Little League. You know what I'm saying? Because they were so good. And then there was us, New Carrollton, the new kids on the block. We were some trash. We just had no business in this division whatsoever. And the only thing that saved us from complete and total utter embarrassment that year was the DC Sniper. It was a wild ass time DC Sniper was out and <laughs> you know Jesus Christ it was like people were afraid to go outside I don't know if you guys are familiar with the DC Sniper situation if you're not from the DMV area but if you're not there was a guy who was riding around in a white van with his son and they were just killing people like sniping them off, blowing their heads off at gas stations and parks and random shit. And it started to get so crazy that people was afraid to like, they was canceling school and all types of shit. And they were trying to figure out where the DC sniper was going to hit next. And if you drove a white van, it was over for you. They was running you down anywhere, you know? And we all thought it was a white man. And it was a, a black guy who I guess they said was like brainwashing his son he was ex-military or whatever. It was a wild situation. There's movies and documentaries about it, but DC sniper shit was serious. And um, I remember we had just showed up to play Peppermill and Moo and all of them were out there and it was like, oh shit, we about to get killed. And we didn't even have enough players to play the game because parents just didn't want to send their kids out. Um, so we got canceled and it was what it was and the season was over. And I think that probably saved a little bit of embarrassment for my father and saved a little bit of embarrassment for me too because I never wanted to be the kid who was like, damn, my father was the coach and we won zero games, you know? But 
I think my father's always been a much better supporter than leader in that kind of way. So the next year, there wasn't going to be a team again for New Carrollton because it was just under-resourced and everything else like that. So I was going to go over to Lanham. That's where my father was coaching at before I had, uh, you know, been at New Carrollton. Because when I was at New Carrollton that first year with that guy, Coach Alonzo, the only year where my father wasn't coaching on the team that I played for, that was the most that I had learned and everything else like that. And it was just, it was still fun. But there was no more team at New Carrollton. And he said, well, why don't you come over to Lanham where I'm coaching at and we'll make something happen there. So I went and I jumped up from playing 75-pound football to 95-pound football. And I was super small because I was supposed to play 85. So I was like the smallest person on the team. And I remember being out there and I had this guy named Coach Rodney. Coach Rodney was the scariest nigga in the fucking world. (laughs) I just got to say it just like there's no other way to say it. His son played quarterback as well. And I think it's so funny how I always went places where somebody else played quarterback who was like a superstar because quarterback is the leader position. So Coach Rodney was the coach and his son was also named Rodney. He's Rodney Jr. And he was so fucking good. He could throw, he could juke, he could do all these different things. And it was weird. It was like I was playing with these older kids and I still wanted to play quarterback, but I just was definitely the backup like I was the backup I was third string you know like I just I had to learn there was no way I was going to start with with him in there you know and when I did get in the game all I ever really did was hand off the ball or call a play or whatever the case may be you know play it safe that's the way it worked and I broke my foot that year I remember I made it maybe about halfway through the season And I was at practice and they called us the dirty dozen. We only had like, I think 14 players on our roster as a whole. You needed 15 to play. And I think we had 15 for registration and then one quit. And we actually went undefeated. Like we were good. Like (laughs) we were super fucking good. We went like 14 and 0, went to the championship Super Bowl, I guess the Little League Super Bowl. And then we went out to, um, Chantilly, Virginia and got whooped by these white boys. I mean, they beat us like 64 to 6. All fundamentals. Just blocking. Big as hell. Country as hell. We thought we was cool because, you know, little black kids from around the way, you know, juking and all types of shit. But I just remember that was such a hard year for me. I broke my foot at practice. Um, They threw me in at safety. You just needed somebody on the defense. And it was always like a full offense and maybe like whoever we had on defense. So it was probably like 11 against like, you know, nine or some shit. And it was just to have somebody to block and get in the way and shit. And I remember being at safety and I tried to go up and make a tackle and the entire team fell on my foot. And I was sitting there screaming. This is the first time my father ever heard me cry. I was like, ah, shit. Fuck. Fuck. Oh, oh my God. We were so close to the hospital. They just threw me in the back seat and drove me over there and shit. And they told me that I had grow, uh, broke my growth plate, which is in my foot. It's like in the front part of your foot where you flex up and down. And it was something that was going to eventually dissolve anyway. It was something that only kids have, you know, so that bone technically didn't really matter it wasn't critical to my development 
And I was out for the rest of the season after that. I was on crutches. And that felt like the biggest relief for me ever, being on crutches. Because earlier, prior to that, it was like every time I was getting ran over because all these kids were way bigger than me. It was like I couldn't understand the playbook. It was way too complex for, you know, having just learned football basically two years prior to. And then the year before having the season canceled on you because of the D.C. sniper. And I remember the coach was just so intense. He was so sarcastic. He would yell. It was like, you know, if you can't get it, you can go stand on the sideline type shit. You know, it was very tough love because that's what worked for his son. And I think him and his son had a more brotherly connection than father and son. You know, I don't think he, he was with his wife. I think it was a situation where and maybe he was. I might be making that up, but I just remember Rodney and his dad were like the best of us. They were best friends. They looked alike. They both had dreads. I just assumed they were Jamaican. And Rodney was just so fucking good. But it was like anytime his father would talk shit, he would have an answer for him. It was like that tough love worked on him. And he would be like, I'm going to prove you wrong. And when he would prove him wrong, it would be like, yeah, in your face. And it was like this friendly con. It was never personal. But I just didn't deal well with communicating like that you couldn't yell at me in my ear or tell me take a lap or put me to the sideline or scold me for fucking up like you have to teach me and nurture me and I always resented my father for not standing up for me in those situations like I remember literally sitting there crying there was one practice where I just could not get the shit so bad. I couldn't make a, it was an option play and I couldn't learn how to do the pitch. And the coach was yelling at me and I went to the sideline and I was just crying and crying and crying. And before my father even came to talk to me, Coach Rodney came to talk to me and he was like, you, you wanna quit? You, you don't wanna play? And I was just like, I just can't do it. I'm so tired. I'm so tired. I can't figure this shit out. I'm just so tired. And he was, was sitting here crying. Ain't going to fix nothing. You know what I'm saying? I don't know what you think crying is going to do. But, you know, he's like, maybe this is not for you. You know, maybe you're not tough enough. Maybe this isn't your game. You know, maybe you're supposed to be doing something else. Like, you know, talk to your father about it. See what you want to do. It was so cold. It was like, who the fuck talks to a child like that? You know what I'm saying? I remember my father came over and he sat next to me and uh, my father wasn't always perfect but one thing he was was understanding he knew I was emotional he sat there and he was just like what's going on man Like, and I was just like I just don't get it and it's hard to speak my throat is all <laughs> choked up and shit like I just can't understand I can't do the pitch and he's always yelling and this and that and blah 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 and I asked him if he could talk to Coach Rodney for me about that. Like, can you talk to him for me? Like, because I just, I can't get it. Like, I don't understand. I just, you know, I can't work. Like, I can't learn that way. Like, and my father, I remember him telling me that I needed to be tougher. And I just had to keep working harder. But he used to always hit me with this guilt trip line. Like, Bailey's don't quit. We don't quit. You started, you got to at least finish the season or whatever the case may be. Your team needs you, all this type shit. 
And you know I me, mean? I'm a logic. Like, what the fuck do they need me for? I'm not doing anything but standing on the fucking sideline and fucking up plays. But <laughs> you know, my dad somehow guilt tripped me into coming back. Cause by the time I went home, my mother was pissed. She was like, I don't want him going back to that fucking team if they don't know how to talk to him. You know, like clearly, like my mother was always the voice of reason. Like your son is not happy. He is emotional. People are yelling at him. And, and you know, I think the thing that my father was able to get over on was this is a guy thing. You don't understand. It's some things you can't teach him type shit, you know, which he was right. Kind of, kind of. But also my mother was right because my mother was like, you're not about to be disrespecting my motherfucking son. If I got to come up there and say something, we got a problem. You know, she was riding. She was ready to ride. But I never forget because I was a little eavesdropper. I was an ear hustler. I was very good at that. I remember it was a specific day that my father was supposed to talk to Coach Rodney about the way that Coach Rodney talked to me. And I'll never forget, it just felt weird because I, I and I could be making this up because it's, it, it is a long time ago, but I just, I don't think I'm making this up when I say I feel like my father bitched out or something. Like he went to talk to him and he didn't really, really talk to him. And, and I kind of understand it now as an adult because, you know, Coach Rodney had a big ass personality and my father also had a big ass personality. But sometimes when two big ass personalities meet, you know, my father had the type of big ass personality that's big when you're around people you're comfortable with and everything else like that. But my father was stepping on to a whole new coaching roster that was already established with each other. It wasn't like he was on his own team with his own folks who he grew up with. So it's a little different, you know, and these were definitely the types of coaches who would be like, what's your boy soft or something, you know, <laughs> And I think my father cared about shit like that. So I remember him kind of almost putting it on me. Like I remember him talking to Coach Rodney about me struggling maybe and me not understanding and me, you know, feeling like I didn't want to play anymore and kind of said, you know, like Dante wants to talk to you, which I thought was some bitch ass shit. But no disrespect, daddy, if you're listening to this, uh, I'm just speaking frankly. I don't I'm not saying that you're a bitch ass person. I'm just saying that it, the moment felt very bitch assness to me. But all the same, I remember talking to coach Rodney and him sitting there and halfway consoling me. It was almost like a political kind of thing like you know him trying to tell me that I need to pay attention more. And I, I can't be out here daydreaming and, you know, he could teach me, but I really have to take it seriously and some other type of shit and him giving me some little halfway rough ass hug and rubbing my head, you know, and some like, yeah, get out of here. Like, all right, you're good now. We're good. Sorry, man. We, we cool. We cool, man. We cool type of shit. And me thinking to myself, like, what the fuck? That was no fucking apology. God damn it. I want an apology. But it wasn't that. And I, I couldn't expect that. And I went back and I played for him one more time again. I played the same because I was the smallest person on the team the year previous too. By the next year, I was the biggest kid on the team. 
I was on 95 and I had to lose weight in order to play. And it was weird because people were scouting me because they were like, oh, yeah, they got this big quarterback, number six. He's big, you know. And <laughs> everybody thought I was going to do some damage or something. And it was a lie. You know, I was a decoy, if anything. I played quarterback, but I wasn't athletic. My boy LT, he was athletic. He had just moved from Ohio. His name was Ladavian Trailer. And he was fast. And he could throw the ball and everything else like that. It was the first time I recognized, you know what? I don't think I'm supposed to play quarterback on this particular team because this kid is good. And they put me at tight end. And I was really good at tight end. I, I could block and, you know, I, I caught maybe a couple of passes or something like that. And I just... And it was good to be able to throw me in that quarterback too for a change of pace every once in a while. And it would confuse the other team. And we did really well that year. We ended up losing like two games and I think we tied one game or something like that. Um, And that year was a little bit more fun because I was understanding how everything worked a little bit better. I think there was a, a... a little bit more respect for me because of the fact that I had played the year prior to as well for the same coach and he expected me to step up and be a leader because he no longer had his son on the team his son had gone to play in high school and he treated me a little with a little more dignity but not because he wanted to probably because he just needed me to be that leader but that was the first time that I ever started to understand football as a game of chess and not checkers you know the strategy behind it made a lot more sense to me for the first time and I said okay I can really do this now I get this shit so then came high school and I knew my father wasn't going to coach in high school so I said wow this is great (laughs) you know no disrespect but it was just so much easier when my father wasn't the coach So I didn't have to worry about feeling slighted for him not going to bat for me, but also not wanting him to try to push me unnecessarily to do more. It was just on me. It was like I was an adult. And because I understood this stuff in and out a little more, this was really like a job. You know, I was like, I'm going to really do this. And I was going to Roosevelt High School, Eleanor Roosevelt. And, um, I remember it was wild because when I came in my freshman year, we had everybody in the county who was playing for us. Now, keep in mind, just the year before, it's halftime orange slices. (laughs) You know, it's still a game. It's still fun. It's not that deep. Everybody plays. You can make a little mistake. It's not the end of the world, even though the coaches act like you're getting paid a million dollars and yell out their head. But when you go to high school, it was different. The coaches were cursing. The coaches treated the players like friends or something, you know? It was like we had this guy named Coach Rick, and he was one of the little people in the in the hallways at school, white guy. And um, he pick up your fucking pants, you know, whatever the case would be, or, you know, get your ass to class, all that type like you He was very casual, but the dude was good. He had won a championship last year, and he had this player named Derek Williams who played for Roosevelt the year before I came into high school. And Derek Williams was the number one player in the country 
So it was like, it almost felt like you could be the next, you know, if you come play for this coach. It was one of those type of things. He went to Penn State. We couldn't believe he was on TV. He was watching this kid who used to play for this high school play in college. It was like the coolest thing ever because I loved watching college football and stuff like that. You know what I'm saying? And I just remember going to two-a-days with my friends and it was over the summer before we came in and looking and seeing everybody from around the county at this one two a day. Tristan Youngblood, Barry Sanders, Devon Smith, AKA Mumu, whoever the fuck, Chris Johnson, whoever's the fastest running back in the fucking world is there. And then they had these other kids named Steph and Boy, and they played for Peppermill as well. And they were super duper dope. And then there was this other guy named Deuce or Darius, and he played for Greenbelt, and he was a super dope running back. And another guy named Quentin is a million running backs from all over the county. And then linebackers and safeties and receivers. And we're thinking to ourselves, how the fuck are we all about to play on this same team? We didn't know basically at that point that they was cheating. <laughs> in our in our county, you weren't allowed to recruit. You weren't allowed to recruit. You had to play for your neighborhood school. Now, granted, I was going to Roosevelt with a fake address, but that had absolutely nothing to do with football. That had to do with the fact that my parents wasn't sending me to Parkdale in New Carrollton because the MS-13 had just, you know, made their mark on the scene and they was taking everything over. And it was real like race wars going on between the black students and the El Salvadorian students at school. And my brother was already there and kind of was navigating it and figuring it out. But even some of the stories that he had was wild as shit. So my parents was like, nah, we're not sending you into that environment. You just came from private school and everything else like that. Fuck no. So I used a fake address. I used my grandmother's address. And I went to Eleanor Roosevelt with a fake address. And that's how I ended up there. But when I tell you everybody else was there on fake addresses too. And I don't know who the hell's addresses they was using. But they was there. And it was a scandal for at least the first two or three years of us playing together um but this was a job you worked out two times out of the day had practice two times out of the day we had to change our diet we wasn't allowed to drink soda and they was telling us don't smoke or drink and all these other kind of things and it was like a, a job a real job the playbooks was really extensive and a little confusing you know I used to have nightmares about not understanding the playbooks you know but I was learning it I was really learning it uh, and when I was at Roosevelt there was a guy named Mike Thomas he played for Forestville growing up and he was just a natural talent supernatural talent and then the other two of us was myself and a guy named Denny Denny was fast as hell. He was like a super track star, but he played quarterback at Greenbelt growing up. And I played quarterback at Lanham. And we used to go head to head a couple of times and like scrimmages and stuff. We used to always beat them in the scrimmage, but we never played each other in the actual league because they were double A and we were triple A. But it was always this kind of like underlying quarterback competition where we knew that Mike was the starter, but who was going to start after Mike? Was it going to be me or was it going to be Denny? Sometimes it was Denny, sometimes it was me. It just depends on who was throwing the ball better that day or whatever the case may be. And everything would switch up. But 
I had the best coach I've ever had in my life when I played JV at Roosevelt. And his name was Dwayne, Coach Dwayne. Coach Dwayne was the first coach I ever had since Coach Alonzo when I was a kid who just took the time to nurture me and teach me. That's it. He took the time to just say, what do you need? What are you not understanding? And he would sit with me and really like help me understand it. But what he taught me went way deeper than like, you know, being a quarterback. Coach Dwayne was teaching me about how to be a man. He was teaching me about how to stand up for myself, how to not let people fuck with me, you know? If I didn't want to be called Tito, which was my nickname in the weight room, because at two a days, one of the upperclassmen, you know, one of the seniors in high school, like, you look like Tito Jackson. You know, it was calling me Michael Jackson at first, and then it was Tito Jackson. And then next, you know, everybody started calling me Tito. And I, as much as I hated it, I can't lie, I wore it as a badge of honor because everybody had a nickname on the football team. So if you didn't have a nickname, you were pretty much invisible. So I had a nickname guess it was worth something and I was smart you know I was very smart I I definitely could help people make decisions I could definitely was like you know the second string quarterback is usually like a sideline secondary coach you can see the things that they can't see on the field so you help make decisions and you help kind of figure things out on the side and in the in, in in the planning but coach Wayne was really just like taking me there he was teaching me about just taking things easier working on my precision working on my technique and reminding me that I didn't have to be the fastest I didn't have to hit the hardest I didn't have to be any of that type of shit if I had the mind and that was where I could tap into you know what I'm saying and it's funny because I never understood what coach Wayne was trying to do for me you know that first year I played JV was a thing. And then the second year I played JV, uh, who was there? I remember it was Mike Thomas playing the first year when we were freshmen. And then that second year, Mike got bumped up to varsity. So it was between me and this other guy named Cook, who was a freshman, but he was supposed to be like real good as a freshman or whatever. And somebody else who was playing as well. I'm not sure if it was Denny. Somebody. Yeah, I think it was me and Denny and and, and Cook who were playing quarterback. And we would switch off. Some days I would start, some days Denny would start. And then Cook eventually started coming up and being that because he could throw the ball, he could slang the thing. And by the time my junior year came around, uh, Coach Wayne wanted me to come back and play JV. And I'll never forget, there was nothing more embarrassing than the idea of being a junior and still playing on JV. Because the idea was that as a junior, you should be playing varsity. And then as a senior, you really play varsity you know like this is where you get your highlights at and stuff like that and he wanted me to come back and play quarterback for the JV as a junior you know just so that I could develop 
and really get the skill set with no distractions you know what i'm saying because his whole point was when you're a senior you know mike he's too short to play quarterback in college he's probably gonna go off and play running back or receiver or something like that that's gonna be your time to shine as a senior you can play quarterback probably if you develop now and do it the right way but I, I just wasn't invested you know I mean I wanted to play but I didn't want to play like that I didn't want to feel like the old guy playing you know old guy Jesus Christ we're in high school the old guy playing with the little kids and that's what JV felt like playing with the little kids it wasn't really counting for anything it wasn't serious you know and you had to go through the social ridicule at school of people saying like you know you could be the starting quarterback they're like man you on jv man you're a little young and whatever the case may be like and you this is somebody your same age people already was already trying to play me low anyway in high school like i wasn't a, a, a of their same level their same caliber you know they would try to bully me verbally or or physically which was rare but you know what i'm saying they would try to bully me and you know it was a thing like i just didn't want to subject myself to more ridicule ridicule by going and playing jv as a junior and then having to see these people in the hallway and knowing that they're laughing at me like you're a junior on jv even if i was doing good it wouldn't have mattered you know so i moved up and i played varsity and um yeah man it just I never forget that was the year that I understood what this was as an adult now I, I, I regret not going back and playing JV for Coach Wayne because I think that probably would have been the most fun and maybe the last opportunity that I would have ever had to have fun playing football but I didn't take it instead I chose peer pressure I actually allowed other people to pull me out of my comfort zone instead of just doing what I usually do, which is fuck y'all. I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't care what y'all think. Like I'm, I'm living for me. I didn't know how to do that yet. I was still influenced by the masses. And for that reason, I, I, I chose to go on varsity just to be able to say that I play varsity and ride the bench, you know? And that was an experience. I, I, I remember how real it got because I was the second string quarterback on varsity, which felt okay because the, the the starting quarterback was a star, you know? But there was a moment when our starting quarterback, Mike, had went down and it was time for me to go up and the game was at a critical point. And I remember being disappointed because I, I had worked really hard and I showed how smart I was and all these different things. And in the moment when the game was clutch and we were playing against a team called Wise, I remember I put on my helmet and I was ready to go in and go play. And they said, Steph, who was a running back, never played quarterback a day in his life. And they told Steph to go in the game instead. And he went in there and they needed a big throw on a on a third down. He went out there and went back. And he threw the ball and threw a launched out pass to this guy named Durkee. And he caught the ball. 
and got tackled out of bounds and it was like as if he was good and just right, right after that Mike was back in the game and they finished out the game and I remember so many people coming over to me on the sidelines and it was one person in particular who was like damn that's crazy bro and like kind of laughed at me and I wanted to punch him in the fucking face you know what I'm saying but it was what it was and then a couple of other people came up to me they tapped me on the helmet looked at me and said it's cool bro don't even worry about it you already know what that's about and what they were speaking about was favoritism and in football there's a lot of favoritism you know which I think prepares you for life you go get a job they're going to choose the person who they're closer to who they know better on a personal level it's not about your quality of work it's not about how hard you work or how smart you are. It's about who they know, who they're comfortable with, who they want to put in the game in those critical moments and give that promotion or that raise to. And you're left high and dry with everybody knowing that you're prepared and ready to go and they didn't believe in you to do your job. And that was what I experienced that senior year. I, I mean, that junior year of high school playing football. And that tore me up. It really did. It, it had me hot. I was just like, I'm over this. So after that year, I uh, was running track as well, whatever the case may be. And by the time they started to do workouts, I wasn't showing up. We had a new coach. We had just been uh, reprimanded for cheating, for having players from all over the country. <laughs> I say literally all over the country, all over the county. But we did have one player from North Carolina, which was wild. They suspended us four games, took away four wins, and we still just barely made the playoffs. And then we went to the playoffs and we lost in the first round. And nobody could believe it because we were undefeated. And I just, there was a part of me that almost was a little bit happy that we lost because I was like, this shit is so foul, you know? But during that offseason, I, I didn't go to the weight room once. I told my father, I said, I'm done. And he was like, I don't think you should do that, man. You should keep playing. You should try to just, you know, this is your senior year, this and that. And my father was always good with trying to cut. And this is the first time I was just like, I'm not playing, man. I'm done. So he told me, just just go talk to Coach Wayne. I, I think if anything, you should just talk to Coach Wayne. Just do that, you know. And Coach Wayne was at Carroll now with Coach Rick, who had moved because, you know, Carroll's a private school, Catholic school in D.C., Talked to Coach Wayne, and he told me, man, you know, he said, if you want to play, you should play. He said, and if you don't, don't. You can't live your life for your father. I know my father didn't see that one coming. <laughs> but he told me straight up, he said, if you do some shit that you're not going, you know, that you don't feel comfortable, you're going to regret it forever. So you have to be a man and make your own decision, you know. And we had this new coach named Coach Green who was so cool. And he was a winner. He had came from like Surrattsville or something like that. And he turned that whole program around. Now he's coming to Roosevelt. And um, I went to his office and I said, Coach Green, can I talk to you for a minute? And he said, yeah, absolutely. He told me, close the door. And I told him, I said, you know, because he knew I was a quarterback. And I said, look, um, you know, no disrespect, but I don't think this is for me. And I told him why. I told him, you know, I, I just... I don't think I'm going to play in college. I don't have any desire to play in college. 
up until this point, I've seen a lot of favoritism on the team. I haven't felt like I got a fair opportunity. And I just told him point blank, you know, I I just, I don't want to let my teammates down, but I feel like everybody has a point where they have to make a decision for themselves. And I feel like the better decision is not to play and instead focus on school and filmmaking, which is what I really want to do in college. And I'll never forget I didn't know this man from Adam because he was brand new to the program and shit like that. He got up and he shook my hand like a grown ass man, looked me in the eye and he said, it takes a lot of courage to come in here and say that. And he said, if you do choose to play, I promise you, you'll have a fair opportunity. There's no favoritism on my team, you know? And he said, based off of your character alone, I would love to have you as a quarterback on my team. But he said, if you choose not to play, I also respect it. And I wish you the best. And I know you're going to be great at whatever you choose to do. And I, I never I never forgot that shit. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, it really it stuck with me. It was like the first time somebody had given me permission to walk away instead of trying to convince me to keep going. And somebody, in, in fact, not only did it, but gave me well wishes my own friends wasn't even my friend I was beefing with my friends who played football with me for a little bit because they was really mad that I quit they couldn't understand it they were like you fucking up our senior year it's our senior year we all supposed to play football together and I'm like for what y'all don't get it you know and that's how I ended up becoming cool with my man Brandon and then next thing you know we all squashed our beef and we kind of all got together and then we was all super tight you know but I just, you know, I, I really, through all the years of playing football, you know, I, I went to, I skipped a lot because I, I used to go to these little football camps and all these little things, you know what I'm saying? It was like these all-star camps and, you know, training camps and shit. Like I always showed my potential. I always showed my talent and my skills. But on the field, I never got the real nourishment or development. And I always felt like I just needed that right coaching. And more than anything, I think what I learned was that you can't put your trust in other people to give you the nourishment that you need respectfully. You know, the best thing you can do is find out what's needed and nourish yourself. And that's what I did from that point on. When I started studying filmmaking for real, for I, I was the only television production for students, level four student in our entire school when I was at Roosevelt. I stuck with it since my freshman year all the way through my senior year. I had the best internship in the schools, interning at Howard University. I had a second internship, excuse me, that I acquired just through my own ambition with a group called Cool Kids Forever Films. And this was my new version of football. This was my film study. I, I watched videos on YouTube and I spent countless hours editing and learning and trying things and testing things. And I was the first on set and last to leave. And I was always available. And you never had to ask me to do anything twice. Once I learned it, I was in it. It was the same way I approached football. I'll be early as hell to practice. I'll stay after and work out extra. I'll try to work hard. I'll try to figure this thing out. But the difference was that I was my own boss in filmmaking to some extent, you know. Your work is always appreciated, always recognized. 
and then you branch out and you do your own and you create your own umbrella of a team who falls in line with the same moral base that you have and the same work ethic that you have I had to become my own and if nothing else what I learned from football was how to communicate my needs how to lower my expectations but then use my communication skills to build team morale and motivate others so that we could higher our expectations right but more than anything to meet people where they're at and to never treat anybody how I didn't want to be treated you know one thing that I can say is that I've never fucked anybody over in filmmaking not over the money not over a concept not over a credit not over nothing I've always done people extremely right because I know what it felt like to not feel like I was done right. And I wonder how many people throughout my course of a 10 to 12 year film career that I've had up until this point, have I provided that same feeling that I got from receiving a halftime orange slice, you know? How many simple moments do they remember? Like, damn, I remember when we was just test shooting or we was learning this shit on YouTube or we're doing these music videos and it was just fun. And now I'm out here dealing with million dollar budgets. So now I'm out here dealing with huge ass clients who want deliverables by tomorrow after they just gave me the project today and they're underpaying me and whatever the case. How many people was I that halftime orange slice for? Because I remember my halftime orange slice in the, in the literal sense. I think we have to take it a little easier. I think we have to be more forgiving to ourselves. Allow ourselves to make mistakes. Not take things as seriously. Communicate our needs. And really, really, really embrace the fact that everybody learns in a different type of way and when you do meet them where they're at and you nurture and you water that plant it can grow into a beautiful ass palm tree or an entire rainforest if you count the um umbrella of people that that branches off to so that's pretty much that i don't know if this uh episode in particular is as interesting to anybody else that it is to me but i'm just speaking my truth I'm just speaking my experiences and you already know this is back in the day. I'll see you next time. I said wish I was a kid again. Back in the day when I was just a little nigga, bro. I looked up to my bigger bro, begged if I could kick it. So when he went out with girls, I could go tagging along, nagging. If she had a sis, maybe could mack a baby hood rat. Y'all remember way back then when it was 1985, all the way live. I think I was about 10. One of those happy.